Today's reading is John 18, verses 1 through 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went to it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost, not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Aeneas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. So Peter was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Aeneas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So they asked him, aren't you one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, your word is a light to our feet, and we pray that you will help us to see just how this extraordinary unfolding of events is light to our feet. Help us, Father, to walk in its light.
In Jesus' name, amen. As we listen to the account of Jesus' arrest just now, what was your reaction to it? How are we meant to react to an account like this? I mean, in one sense, that's it's fairly obvious. As we read, we're, we're taken up into an incredibly dramatic narrative. It's a, a gripping drama that plays out before us. There's the, the darkness of the night. There's the, the lanterns and the weapons of the soldiers as they come to arrest Jesus. There's the betrayal of Judas, the traitor. There's the, the violent skirmish with Peter that just lasts for a moment. And then there's that travesty of the sham trial Jesus hauled before the high priests in the small hours of the morning. And the events are incredibly dramatic and they, they, they're compelling. They draw us in. And I guess we might also react with quite a bit of emotion as well. Not just as we, in a detached kind of way, recoil at the cowardice of the betrayal or the, the, the corruption of the injustice at the trial, um, but for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, uh, this is the one that we worship and adore, being arrested and treated so cruelly and unjustly and double-crossed and slandered. So maybe as we read, we feel anger towards Judas and the authorities and, and sorrow and pity towards Jesus. And maybe we identify with Peter in the story. Maybe we think that if, if we were there watching this unfolding then we would have done whatever we could to have stopped it. We, we would, would have tried to do something to stop all this from happening. But this morning, I actually want to suggest that our reaction should be the opposite of doing something, in a sense. In one sense, the opposite of getting involved, like Peter tried to get involved. We need to stand back and watch and trust. We need to trust Jesus as he lays down his life. Nothing else, in a sense. Just watch and trust. Now, why do I say that? Um, partly, it's because of what surrounds this chapter. So, in the previous few chapters, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and, and trying to prepare them for all that's about to happen. And he's been saying things like this. I hope we can see it up on the screen. Talking about his death, Jesus says to his disciples, Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there, in other words, via the cross, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Trust me, says Jesus. Trust me to go to the cross and prepare a place for you, the other side of death. And also trusting Jesus is John's whole reason for writing this gospel. So in a couple of weeks we'll get to uh, chapter 20 and verse 31. And uh, John there spells out his reason for writing his entire gospel. And he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So just believe, just trust Jesus and have life. Now, that might sound easy. Uh, just, just watch and trust. Uh, surely we can do that. 
But as we'll see, it was the very last thing that, that Peter could do. It was the one thing he didn't want to do. The very last thing he was willing to do was to, to just stand back and watch events unfold and trust Jesus. He wanted to take matters into his own hands. He wanted to participate. He wanted to be involved and, and even to try and take control of events when they weren't going the way he thought they should. And Peter needed to be broken to reach the end of his attempts to get involved and do something. And to hit that point where his only remaining option was to just stand back and try to trust. And we'll hopefully explore our own reactions this morning. It's possible that we're a little bit like Peter in that respect. Uh, in our own way, refusing to just watch and trust. Maybe we too need to get to the end of ourselves and just watch and trust. Trusting people can be hard, can't it? Um, you know those really annoying uh, team-building or ice-breaking games where you basically have to fall backwards into someone else's arms so that they catch you as you fall. Uh, you have to be absolutely certain that that person is there, that they're not a joker who's going to jump aside and think that's hilarious at the last minute. Um, you have to be very, very, very sure to just let yourself fall into their arms without looking behind you or sticking a hand behind you or doing something to try and cushion that blow. And uh, even with a non-joker behind you, it goes against all of our instincts to just fall to just trust that instinct to do something to avoid fully trusting someone could keep us trusting Jesus as he goes to his death and so I want us to see a couple of things that Peter hadn't seen uh, as we go through this narrative a couple of things that we need to recognize if we're going to trust Jesus so two things about Jesus laying down his life number one he goes deliberately so don't try to stop him. And number two, he goes alone. So don't try to help him. So firstly, Jesus goes deliberately. Now to some people, as we look at this drama unfolding, I guess this wouldn't have been very obvious. Imagine seeing all this happening from a distance. You'd have seen um, in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples coming out of Jerusalem and going into a garden. Uh, this olive grove, uh, the other Gospels call it the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they're there, there's just 12 of them, Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples after Judas has gone missing. And uh, that's just 12 men, just Jesus and the 11, hardly a formidable fighting force, uh, settling down apparently to maybe camp for the night in the garden. And then after a, a, a little while, you'd see a horde of people coming out of Jerusalem towards them. Uh, in verse 3, you'd see Judas. You'd see him coming to the grove, grove the, the former disciple, uh, the one who's come to betray Jesus, who knows exactly where they'll be. He knew the place. It was a regular haunt for Jesus and the disciples. So who's, who's in control? It looks like Judas is in control. He's the one manipulating things, orchestrating all of this. And with him is... Uh, a, a horde of soldiers, the word for detachment in verse 3, probably indicates several hundred Roman troops. And they're in league with these officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, the, the Jewish religious leaders. So 
as you looked at this event from a distance, you'd see a mass of lanterns and you'd hear the clatter of the weapons and the armor, vastly outnumbering Jesus and the disciples in manpower and equipment. And so as you watch, there's this minor altercation with with Peter, um, but the outcome surely is inevitable. They get the man they want, they tie him up, and they march him off. Who's in control? Well, looks like the authorities, the people with the weapons, the people with the numbers. But look closer, and all is not as it seems. Something is very, very odd about all of this, right from the outset. Um, Jesus has been teaching in public, out and about, in front of everyone. And the Gospels tell us that the authorities were afraid to arrest him because of the, the popular support that he had. On one occasion, there was even a detachment of soldiers that were, were, were commanded to arrest him and came back saying, we couldn't do it, we're just too impressed by what he said. So um, these authorities are, are so incredibly impotent in the face of Jesus that they've had to resort to this underhand, secretive arrest under cover of darkness, making use of an informant who's come to them offering betrayal for money. It's pretty pathetic, really. It's a bit like the, the Gaddafi regime in Tripoli. Do you remember how they arrested that one lone woman um, in her hotel room using 15 armed men at 3 o'clock in the morning? Cowardly. Paranoid. And the soldiers here are not just afraid of the crowds and what might happen there. They're, they're terrified of Jesus. And rightly so given the miracles he'd done in public. Hence the numbers overkill, several hundred armed soldiers against 12 men. And when they reach the garden, what happens next shows us precisely who is in control of all of this. So in verse 4, we're told that Jesus knows all that is about to happen to him. He knows. Jesus knows. He knows that he's going to be put on trial and falsely accused and condemned. He knows he's going to be whipped and beaten and crucified. He knows. And then he deliberately makes it happen. So verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, went out and asked them. He walks out to the soldiers before they've even identified them and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, well, that's me. And they're so full of fear that verse 6 happens. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it's almost comic. It almost is what we saw earlier in the kids' slot. This moment of sort of farcical hesitation as these trembling troops suddenly realize they're actually face-to-face -face with the miracle worker who they've set out to arrest. And, I don't know, maybe the front ranks stumble backwards a bit in fear and uh, trip up a couple of others, and so a whole load of them end up falling over or something like that. And for a moment, there's this glorious picture of Jesus, the Lord, with armies subdued at his feet. How very appropriate. So Jesus is in full control of his destiny. No one is forcing him to do anything. These are the soldiers who, 
apparently, as it seems, are about to enforce Jesus' death. But they're in control of nothing. And here we see them cowering in fear, even as Jesus offers himself to them for a rest. And there's more. When Jesus says, I am he, twice. In Greek, it's just two words. I am. I am. The name of God himself that is used a number of times in the Bible. It's just a brief allusion here. The phrase can equally mean, that's me. But it completes the picture for us. Here's God in human flesh, who John's gospel has shown us from start to finish, is both God and man, fully God, fully man, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is here. And an army trying to arrest him ends up bowing before him. Well, the soldiers pick themselves up and Jesus has to issue another invitation to them before they finally step forward and get on with the job of arresting him. Uh, Maybe it's that hesitation of the soldiers that encourages Peter to lash out with his sword. And you've got to admit, Peter had guts, um, but then maybe he thought Jesus would fight as well. I don't know. Peter wants to stop this arrest from happening. He wants to stop these events from playing out. But there's no stopping Jesus, who is in control of it all. Jesus goes deliberately and purposefully. And we see hints of the purpose of the cross here. Verse 8 has Jesus saying, If you're looking for me, then let these men go. A hint maybe of the way Jesus' death would save others. As Jesus goes deliberately to his death, he is saving the lives of others. And in verse 11, we see even more clearly what's going on. The cup which the Father has given Jesus to drink is not just any cup. It's not just a figure of speech. It's not just a way of saying, I'm going to go through something really tough. It's a very specific cup. It is the cup of God's judgment. And the Bible regularly refers to a cup of God's wrath. Uh, Here's just one example from Jeremiah 25, verse 15. If we could have a look at that. I think there's a couple of slides on. I'll read it and then maybe the computer will catch up. Jeremiah 25:15 This is what the Lord the God of Israel said to me Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it So Jesus' death on the cross will be a drinking of this cup this cup of God's righteous anger and punishment for the rebellion of the world It's a way of helping us to picture why it was that Jesus had to die. Put it this way. Imagine that I had to face a legal, a a lethal dose of poison for my crimes. And so did you. And imagine that my dose and your dose are combined and everyone else's dose is combined and they're distilled and boiled down to just one small cup. A tiny little cup of poison. Billions of doses, just adding up to one unimaginably evil, potent measure of poison. That's the way we put it in our our Christianity Explored courses. That is the cup that Jesus is going to drink. And in that cup is my punishment, your punishment if you're a Christian. 
even Peter's punishment. And Jesus is going to drink that cup, all of it, down to the very, very dregs. Jesus dies to take the punishment that you and I and Peter deserve. So Peter needs this. You and I need this. So if that's, if that's something that's new to you, or if you're struggling to make sense of it, um, do chat with me, chat with Matt. Come along to um, the Christianity Explored course that you've got cards for. Because this is so, so crucial. The cross is the moment when Jesus takes the punishment of every single one of his followers. Jesus must drink this cup. That is what he goes so deliberately to do. Now, of course, if we really understood that, if Peter understood that, we'd never try to stop Jesus going to his death. We'd never try to intervene and prevent it from happening. We'd just watch. We'd just trust. But I want us to think for a moment, do we really understand that Jesus deliberately went to his death for us? I don't know if you've ever watched or listened to Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, If you have, you'll know that the Jesus of Lloyd Webber and Rice is very different from this Jesus in, in quite a few ways. And when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, their version of Jesus is confused and unsure, unclear on why he's going to his death. So he, he says, or rather sings, uh, to the Father, show me a reason for your wanting me to die. You're, not, you're far too keen on where and how, but not so hot on why. And this Lloyd Webber Jesus says that he was once inspired, but now he's sad and he's tired. And he's, he says, I'm scared to finish what I started. And then he corrects himself and says to the father, no, 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 not what I started, what you started. I didn't start it. I guess in many people's minds, that's kind of what happened. Jesus never really wanted to be arrested. Imagine for a moment that that was true. Imagine that Jesus was an unwilling victim who unintentionally maybe took his confrontation with the authorities a step too far, never meant to get arrested, certainly not to get killed. Would you put your trust in an event like that? Not only would it be a tragic accident, but you'd have to say it would be a horrific cruelty on God's part. If it was God's plan to save us, by means of Jesus dying on the cross, and the Bible repeatedly assures us that it was, then if Jesus was an unwilling victim, then God is a monster. God's solution to our sin on that view is to deflect all that punishment, that cup that we deserve, onto an unwitting third party. But even worse, Jesus is the Son of God. Here's God offering his own unaware, unsuspecting child who goes innocently and even ignorantly to a horrific death. And we might wonder, did Jesus ever realize what his father was doing? Did he ever properly twig just before the end, maybe, that that was his father's plan, that he was using him as a scapegoat for saving people? That would be a terrible, horrific thing to put your trust in, wouldn't it? Let's... Personalize that for a second. Imagine that you were arrested for a crime. I don't know, maybe you sneak into church tonight, nickel the communion wine. And, um, I don't know, you're arrested. And uh, the judge sentences you to some time in jail. 
And that's fair. You deserve it. You did it. Uh, and, well, what if I came to you and I said, wait, look, I, I really care about you. I, I don't want you to face some time in jail. And I found a way for you to, to escape that. Uh, instead of you serving that sentence, here's my, my son, Joel. He's only one. I, he doesn't know what's going on. Give him to the police. Let him spend some time in jail. He can't really talk much yet. There won't be much trouble. He'll probably cry and be traumatized and, and hate every second of it. But I, yeah, I guess that's unavoidable. Look, you'll go free. Isn't that great? Stupid illustration. But what would you think of me? What would you think of this supposedly loving, sacrificial guy offering to get you out of jail? Surely you'd think that is not love. That is something twisted and wrong and cruel. I, I can't accept that offer of freedom if it involves the abuse of a, an innocent child. And I hope we will all want to say, I can't accept the cross of Christ as showing God's love if it involves the forced, coerced death of Jesus, the Son of God. So we have to see, we must see, that Jesus, the Lord, the I am, goes deliberately to his death. So don't try to stop him. Don't do a Peter. Now, you might be aware that this has been something of a, a hot issue in recent years. Uh, a well-known author, Steve Chalk, um, wrote a book uh, where he claimed that if, if we believe that on the cross Jesus was taking the punishment for our sins, then we essentially believe in cosmic child abuse. Well, if Jesus was an unwilling victim, then yes, of course, that's right in a sense. God is a cosmic child abuser. But we have to say that on that issue, Steve Chalk is, is horrendously, awfully wrong. And we wonder if he's ever read John 18 properly. Here's Jesus in full control of events, orchestrating his own arrest, inviting the soldiers to, to take him, encouraging them again when they hesitate, preventing Peter or anyone else from stopping it from happening. So just watch and trust he goes deliberately. Make sure you know that. Make sure you're convinced of it. Make sure you're aware that as Jesus goes to his death, as the Lord of hosts, the ruler of all, that you don't mentally try to stop him, as Peter tried to do physically. You need him to die for you. So he goes deliberately. And secondly, he goes alone. He goes alone, so don't try to help him. Jesus is bound and taken away for trial. And from that point, he is basically alone. Uh, deserted by everyone, including his closest disciples. Peter and another disciple manage to follow him into the courtyard. Um, but they do nothing for him. Jesus alone faces this series of trials. And it's, it's all still happening in the middle of the night, which still makes it legally dubious at best by the laws of the time. Um, there's some confusion here as well about the, the high priestly family. Did you notice there's Anas and there's Caiaphas? Uh, Anas is Caiaphas's father-in-law, and yet they both seem to be referred to as the high priest at different moments. It's worth mentioning that historically that makes sense. Um, Anas was the original high priest who was deposed by the Romans, who gave the office to several members of his uh, family, including Caiaphas in succession. But Anas still seems to have been around, wielding a bit of influence. Um, and it's just another way that John helps us to see these, these guys, 
don't even know who the ruler is, really. It's all a bit confused. They're not in charge. They're not in control. They're under the Romans, and they can't even sort out who the high priest is. But verse 14 takes us to the heart of our point about Jesus going alone to his death by reminding us of something very odd that Caiaphas once said. Uh, This is quoting something Caiaphas said back in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. Verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, at first glance, that is really strange, isn't it? Uh, It looks as if Caiaphas is aligning himself with Jesus. It's as if he sort of understands and approves and supports Jesus' mission to die on the cross. But sadly, that is not the case. Um, Here's what Caiaphas meant, which if you read John 11, you can see explained. Caiaphas meant, the people are in danger from this Jesus movement. Uh, It's getting too popular. There's going to be some sort of popular uprising if we're not careful. And our our position of authority is at risk. Uh, If this carries on, the Romans are going to come. They're going to take away our, our control. They're going to remove us from our posts. And we're going to lose control of the nation. So let me advise you, we need to kill Jesus. It's better if one man dies for the sake of the people. That's what's going through Caiaphas's mind. That's what he meant by it. But what, what an incredible statement to make in the light of what Jesus is, is really doing. John records these words of Caiaphas, knowing that they're truer than he ever realized, um, albeit with a, a very, very different meaning. Because Jesus really is dying for the people here. He really is, as one man alone for the sake of many. And no one can help Jesus with that. No one else can drink the cup of God's wrath. No one else can die as a perfect sacrifice. Jesus goes alone. And again, Peter needed to learn this. And sadly, again, he had to learn the hard way. Um, Back in chapter 13, Peter was gung-ho and full of confidence, and uh, he thought he could follow Jesus all the way. Uh, Here's how the conversation went, if we can see it on screen. Um, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Peter thinks he can lay down his life for Jesus. Well, maybe in a sense, he was willing to die by the sword for Jesus, if need be. But the death of Jesus is different. It's unique. It was a death on behalf of people, a death for my sins and your sins and Peter's sins. And Peter could not die that death. Jesus had to go alone and to lay his life down for Peter. And so these events in chapter 18 play themselves out with a sort of horrible inevitability about them. Um, Just as Jesus predicted, Peter denies him three times. But look at the precise words that Peter uses to deny Jesus. Verse 17. 
You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Same again in verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Jesus says, I am. Peter says, I am not. Just like Caiaphas, I guess Peter is speaking better than he knows. Uh, In a sense, he's lying and telling the truth at the same time. Uh, So, of course, Peter's lying about not being a disciple, to hide his identity from the authorities. But, in a sense, he's also telling the truth. (laughs) I am not. I'm not worthy to help Jesus. I can't assist him as he goes to his death. I'm not the one. Only Jesus is. Only Jesus can die for the people. And sandwiched in between these accounts of Jesus, uh, of Peter denying Jesus, is the account of Jesus' hostile questioning by Annas and his cronies. And unlike Peter, Jesus doesn't back down. Unlike Peter, Jesus is unashamed. And in verse 20, he stands by everything he's ever said. So, Uh, Verse 20, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. For that, an official struck him in the face. Just the the start of the the physical abuse and the torture and the death that was coming Jesus' way. But Jesus just keeps telling the truth. Verse 23. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? So this is a deliberate juxtaposition, a deliberate comparison of these two men. Peter is ashamed. Jesus is unashamed. Peter lies. Jesus speaks the truth. Peter says, I am not. Jesus says, I am. And by the time the cock crows at the end, in verse 27, the verdict, at least on Peter, is clear. His attempts to help Jesus have faltered. He's not up to it. Peter cannot lay his life down for Jesus or anyone else. Peter is a sinner, just like you and me. So Jesus goes alone without help from Peter or from anyone else. Now, on one level, that is a tragic, sad story. Peter goes away dejected and well aware of his own failure, broken, having disowned his master uh, when it mattered the most. And we feel his anguish as we read this chapter. And yet there's fantastic hope here. This is not the end of the story for Peter. Jesus is laying down his life dying alone for the people. And one of those people is Peter. And we'll see Peter again after Jesus rises from the dead. And for him, there's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's even a commission. Peter will serve Jesus. He will help Jesus. He will even lay down his life for Jesus. But only after Jesus has laid down his life for him. 
There will be a time for Peter to take up his cross and follow Jesus. But first, Jesus had to take up his cross and die for Peter. As Jesus lays down his perfect life for our sins, we have to just trust him. Trust him to go alone and not try to help him. Just watch and trust. Now look, Peter had to learn this the hard way. Um, He was a proud man. Maybe some of us can relate to his mentality. Um, Maybe others find it easier to confess their faults and admit helplessness and just trust in a a personality sense. Others fight like Peter with every fiber of their being. And if you're the type that wants to fight for the cause and wants to get involved, then maybe you are a Peter. And maybe there's a danger that you say to Jesus... Look, Jesus, uh, there's something you need to know about me. I do things my way. I want to be in control. And if you're interested in having me as your disciple, then you'd better be ready to hear my views on things. Jesus, if your agenda clashes with mine at some point, then basically I will oppose you. I'll fight you. And I'll expect you to make room for me to prove myself at your side really is what is underlying Peter's attitude here. That's really what he was saying. And what we might say ourselves if we're clinging on to our pride. And it's not necessarily just the macho alpha males who think like that. I know as well as any macho bloke, the the fires of frustration that seethe within a bloke uh, as you finally have to admit defeat and realize that you're going to have to ask for directions somewhere. And becoming a Christian can be like that frustration Times a billion. And yet, if that is what it takes to break you, to get you to the end of your self-reliance, then that is what it takes. C.S. Lewis, uh, who, who wrote as much as anyone about being delighted in his relationship with God, the joy of knowing God, described his conversion to Christianity like this. He said, I gave in. And I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And he'd been fighting, and he had to stop and start trusting. And like C.S. Lewis, like Peter, we need to come to the end of our self-confidence. We've got to be broken, whether we do that the easy way or the hard way, and I suspect there's probably no easy way. We need to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm just a sinner like Peter. I'm going to fail you when it comes to the crunch. If I keep trying to lay down my life for you, then I'm going to fail. Jesus, you are the I am. I am the I am not. So I, I don't know, maybe this morning the cock is crowing for some of us this morning. And the time is up. It's time to take a good look at ourselves and realize the the futility of a self-promoting attitude in front of Jesus. Uh, You can't help him. You can't stop him. He's the Lord. You can't help him unless he's died for you first. So we've got to just give up on ourselves. No matter how dejected that makes us feel. Um, And as Jesus lays down his life for us, we've got to just watch and just trust. And as we fall backwards into his arms, he will catch us. He caught Peter. He caught C.S. Lewis. He'll catch you. Let's pray. 
our loving Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for Jesus' death on the cross. Forgive us for when we have failed to trust it with all, the, all of our heart, with every fiber of our being. Forgive us for when we have thought that we could contribute something to our own salvation. Father, help us to fall into the arms of Jesus, trusting him. Pray, Father, that you'd help each one of us this morning to do that, whether for the first time or again for the nth time, as we've let a bit of self-reliance creep back in. Thank you that you will catch us. In Jesus' name, amen.